Hello, I'm Greg Mead, this week's host of Sri Ponya's One Breath Podcast. It is our intention and our prayer to engage in powerful and intimate conversations with people many of us may consider or even refer to as ordinary. But I assure you, as you listen today, you will experience a human being that is anything but ordinary. In fact, they are extraordinary. Extraordinary in their courage, extraordinary in their love, extraordinary in their intention and purposefulness to live as a gift to you and to me. So please attune your heart, attune your ears, and listen. And I assure you, I am almost certain that you will not be disappointed. Jalen Suppa, it is so good to have you uh, in the studio to do a podcast for Sri Ponya's One Breath podcast. You and I had a chance to meet. First of all, I don't even know if you remember it because there were a lot of people on a call with the uh, Central Oregon Health Council. And, yes. And you had done a like a presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we followed up, and you were uh, gracious enough to be um, on the panel for a film that that uh, Jennifer and I, that Shreeponia showed at Tin Pan called Gather. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's just been a privilege to get to know you that little bit for those few moments, and I've been looking forward to being able to meet you in person and have a conversation. So thank you for coming into the studio to do this with me today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Have you lived in Warm Springs your entire life? Um, I grew up in the northern part of the reservation in Simnasho. Okay. Um, Went to school here in Warm Springs and then on over to Madras uh, Middle School at the time and then high school. Um, but I did leave a couple of times for college after high school. But yes, a majority of my life has spent here in Warm Springs on the reservation. Where did you go to school? Um, I went to Chemeketa Community College first um, to play basketball. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I came home briefly. I had um, ended up taking care of my um, toddler niece. And so at the age of 19, 20, I got, I was fostering my niece. So I was home for probably about almost two years. And then I, um, she was getting ready to go back to be placed back with her father. And then I uh, decided to go back to school and I enrolled at Portland Community College and moved over to Portland in the Clackamas area. Hmm. And then came back to Warm Springs as soon as you were done? Um, no, I, in the middle of that, I, I did get a boyfriend and <laughs> there's always that <laughs> and, um, ended up moving up to the Tacoma area for about a year. And then, um, when he got, uh, he was in the army and then he got deployed and, um, I stayed over there for a little bit, but it was super lonely. I didn't have a lot of friends up there, um, no family. So I ended up moving, back to Portland for a little bit and then came back here. And then ever since then, I've been 
been here in Warm Springs, and that was in 2010 is when I moved back here. You are part of a gathering. You, you are a gatherer here for the tribes. And we had, uh, you know, screened that film that had to do with food sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you share a little bit about what you do here? Um, And and you're also founder of an organization called Papalakcha Misha. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. Can you share with us, you know, what, what the organization is? And then I would love to explore regaining the traditions of food gathering and food sovereignty and some of the things that we were able to talk about uh, after the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've been gathering our first foods all of my life. I was raised by my grandmother, by my grandparents, and my grandmother has gathered all of our roots, all of our berries. She's um, cut fish and preserved fish, uh, cut up deer and elk and preserved those. And so um, I grew up in in that environment. And she wasn't a, she's a designated food gatherer as well, but she never got on the line. And on the line means like when a, a feast happens, you are out there serving the food before, um, during the feast so that when the community comes together, we all eat it. And it's a time to give thanks for our our water, our land, and our food. And then, so um, my two aunts were designated food gatherers from our family. And I come from the Simnasho district. And so uh, each family has um, typically two folks that are designated, two women, Um, And then there is, for the fish and the um, meat, there are men that are designated from families as well. Um, But for the roots and berries, the women are designated. And so from our family, it was two of my aunts. And one of my aunts who was having a hard time walking, because there's a lot of walking that you have to do in the longhouse to serve the food, she um, decided she was going to step down and so she named me in her place and so that's how I became a designated food gatherer for my district in Simnasho and then around that same time we lost my aunt who was our other designated food gatherer and so then my sister she named my sister um, her replacement before she passed away so when she passed away my sister stepped into that role so it kind of was around the same time so we were learning together we didn't know a ton about it. We've gone to feast all of our lives, um, but we didn't. We knew we know how to serve and everything, but it was just a whole nother um, experience. And you know, um, a part of that is your you have to gather food not just for your family, but also for those feasts and for other things that happen, like funerals or celebrations. So you have to kind of gather. Um, more than you typically would in just if you're just gathering for your family. Um, and so that's kind of you know how I came into um, being a designated food gatherer. But you don't have to be a designated food gatherer to go out and gather your foods. Um, and, you know, uh, like our Huckleberry Feast, you don't have to be a designated food gatherer to step on the line there either. And our, you know, it's been 
kind of over the years starting to open up so that we can teach more people how to do to kind of be on the line to help serve um because we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we've served, but we definitely didn't really know what we were doing. So we were like, we were watching everybody. And um, so, but, you know, it, it's an honor to be able to be a designated food gatherer, but it is a lot of responsibility. Um, and so I talked to my children about, you know, that responsibility. And, you know, we go out and we gather foods. And year-round, um, wintertime is about the only time that we're not gathering foods and so, um, yeah, I think that's my experience around food. And then Papalaksimisha, um, which means unity in the Itchishkin language. And in Warm Springs, there's three different languages. You have Itchishkin, um, uh, the Wasco language, and then the Paiute language. And um, the their, their native tongue is, is escaping my mind right now. <laughs> But uh, my family speaks Itchishkin, and so that's how Papalaksimisha came to be, is because that's what I—that's my language I identify with, and it means unity in our language. And um, so, what we, you know, it started out as a career and college readiness program, and you know, it was the sister program to Juntos, really focusing on that career and college readiness. But as we kind of start developing the program. You know, over the years, we learned that we, you know, it was much bigger than teaching our our youth and their families how to support them when they go away to college. And that was my experience. You know, I was a first-generation college student. But after we, you know, we started really looking at, you know, the educational system and our wanting to bring in and weave in our cultural teachings and our traditional knowledge into our programming we really expanded from being career and college readiness more to trying to, um, I don't want to say reconnect because we've never, you know, in some levels and in some areas we have been disconnected and those were intentional disconnections, but we never really have been disconnected from our teachings and our cultural ways. You know, we might have, um, it might have diminished but, you know, we never, you know, there's probably some things that we have lost, but I don't see it as us losing our culture or our language or any of our traditions. And so, um, but that's the only word that's coming up for me right now is reconnecting back to our cultural teachings and um, weaving that into our programming. And so we really started looking at kind of a whole person and a whole family and really working towards a model of how do we holistically heal from the traumas that we've experienced as a people in this country. and But how do we do that in a way that is um, healing and holistic and in a good way that aligns with our values and our belief systems that we have built in already within our communities? And so, you know, we started, we, we have a food preservation project that we do. Um, we have restorative justice that we do. Um, we offer, um, we still do the college and career readiness. That's still a part of our work. Um, but we also try to weave in all the different cultural teachings. Like they've made moccasins last year. Hmm. Um, and uh, they've done necklaces. They've done rope beading. Uh, 
they went to a Comic-Con. And so we just, do, you know, just supporting um, our youth in that way, too, and, and creating spaces for our families to come together to learn something new or try something they've already done, or even to teach. If they know how to teach something, we provide that um, space and opportunity for people in the community to teach it, too, because we know we're not, we're not the experts and we don't claim to be. And so we really want to be able to empower community to um, share and, um, and lead and uplift one another in the ways and the skills that we all carry because we all carry skills within ourselves and they're all different. Well, that variety and diversity must bring a lot of creativity together when you, when you come together. What ages... What, how young do you begin to work with children and the families? And you had mentioned whole family, um, working with the, the entire family. Is that the nuclear family, or do you incorporate the, the, the greater community as well? We, you know, our definition of family is, um, I think, definitely different than what Western um, systems and institutions would define as family, you know, because for me, you know, if somebody asks, who are your parents? You know, I do have my dad and I have my mom, but I say my grandma, you know, but she's my grandma. She's not my birth mother, but that's who raised me. So she's like my mother, but that's, but she's my grandma. And so, um, and then uh, down to my kids, you know, they have me, I'm a single mother but then they have my sister and then my other aunt and um, my friends who are like aunts and uncles around them too. And we define that as our nuclear family too. And so it's not kind of this set mom, dad, child, child. Um, we're, you know, our, the makeup of our, our families could be aunt is raising nieces and nephews um, or grandparents raising grandchildren or, you know, you know, it's just, it's different. And so we, we really let families define that for themselves of what, what their family looks like. And each one looks different. And I would say the age range, you know, we kind of say cradle, um, Mm -hmm. cradle to grave. Mm -hmm. And so whether that's prenatal or two days old to, you know, my grandmother was sitting at our, um, our language class last night and she's 90 years old. So, you know, so our, our ages range based off of whoever wants to participate and, and engage. And we really want to support the whole family with whatever that looks like for them, because we know that our youth can't be supported if we're not supporting their whole family, too. Was there a focus of a return or reconnection to, the, to your traditions when you were growing up? Not really. I mean, I was lucky enough to grow up in um, a family that was, you know, continuing to go to the longhouse and gather the foods. And and so I was, you know, a lot of hands-on learning for me and growing up in that. But a lot of our, our families aren't that lucky. Um, and some choose to just not, and that's fine too. You know, each their own. But I was lucky enough to grow up in that. Um, and I also was very sheltered. You know, I lived in Simnasha, which is about um, 15 to 20 miles out 
And so when we came into town, it was like specifically for school, sports, and probably groceries. So I didn't, you know, get to really participate in any kind of programming. So if there was programming going on, I didn't get to do that. I was um, mostly into sports. And um, so I don't remember seeing anything kind of like what we're doing. I'm sure there was probably programming being offered. It's just because I lived so extremely rural, we didn't have the ability to stay here in Warm Springs for something that was like five to seven because then that means we're getting home at 8 p.m. And I was in sports year-round pretty much. And then when I wasn't in sports, we were out gathering our foods. Was there a uh, – as as you grew up, when you were playing – you started playing sports here uh, at the reservation school? Um, I started playing sports with um, my, with my family, really. Hmm. Um, my uncle had a team, and I was – one of the younger kids out of the age group. Um, my cousins were all older than me, um, and my sister was kind of the youngest in that age, um, but I was one of the younger ones, so they already had a team going, and so that I got to go to practice two nights a week at our community center, and then when I got old enough to play um, Kiwanis and Madras, I played Kiwanis, and then school ball. Then I went into school ball. But I started um, with my uncle. He was coaching. And had you been an athlete? So yes. you that's it's a genetic yeah. predisposition to, to yeah. being an athlete? Yeah. <laughs> um, all of, um, I think a majority of uh, my aunts and uncles and my dad all played basketball. And so our family is a big basketball family. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah, my I grew up with um, my grandfather played football with Jim Thorpe. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, there's a gentleman that I've gotten to know here on the reservation or in Warm Springs, uh, Frank Smith, who talked who's talked a lot about Jim Thorpe being, you know, a, a person that really was famous, and and he was for me too. But when I heard my grandfather used to play football against him. Um, I was, I was pretty impressed. And so my granddad was, uh, pretty adamant that I find a sport that I loved. So I started playing baseball when I was a little kid and he was a catcher. So my first year in little league, I tried to be a catcher and I couldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up playing third base all the way through school, but there is something about athletics and sports that gives us an opportunity to experience uh, a dimension of life that people who aren't athletes don't get to experience. Yeah. Was, yeah. was it, uh, did, did athletics in, in your, uh, your athletic ability, has it taken you places and given you opportunities that had you not been an athlete, you may not have been able to experience? Yeah, it it did. It, I mean, for one, like once you start playing school ball, um, your grades, you have to have the grades in order to play. And um, I will admit that I was quite competitive. And so <laughs> um, I wanted to make sure that I was playing. And so, you know, that equated to me making sure I got my schoolwork done. Um, we traveled a lot. Um, 
you know, we played a lot of res ball going to different reservations and, and cities to play. And so it gave me the ability to travel and see different places. And, um, and then, like I said earlier, I did go to play for Shemekeda. I was recruited by Shemekeda and, and played a year over there. And so it, you know, um, I knew I was going to college because my grandma told me that all the time. Like when you go to college, you're going to college. Like the language was always used in a way that you're going. There was never a question of if I was going or not. So I knew I was going. I just didn't know where. And that's how I ended up in Shemekeda. And my my aunt, um, one of my aunts actually played for Shemekeda too. And so our family had a history there. Um but I think also just the, you know, being, it kept me out of trouble because um, mm. it kept me busy. But also, you know, just I think, you know, I was a year round. I played volleyball. I played basketball. And then I played softball up until high school. And then I went into tennis. And so then I did tennis in the spring. So I was a year round athlete. And I think one of the things that it really teaches you is, you know, responsibility for self. Um accountability um it teaches you um about your your health as an athlete it teaches you how to work with others um and if you know if you have the right coaches and mentors you know it really gives you life lessons and when they make those connections with you at those early ages and then, you know, when you're later down the road and you're like, oh, you know, some of those connections come back and you're like, this is what they were talking about. And that, I think, for me was probably the biggest one of, of learning, um, you know, how to how to work with other, how to work with my teammates, um, but also still be an individual in, you know, on the floor and um, and then also how to be accountable for not just myself, but to my teammates and, you know, making sure that we're uplifting one another when you know you're down you're down by five and you want to put your head down but you you can't you know we need to make sure that we're staying positive and supporting each other because if we go down that road then we'll probably end up losing you know mm -hmm. so it, it teaches you a lot um and you know my both of my children are are athletes um my son is the basketball player. My daughter does not want to play basketball. Um, we're such a big basketball family that everybody's like, what? And she's tall and she's left-handed and people are like, what? But she just doesn't want to. She loves volleyball and golf. But um, I, you know, I think wherever you play in any type of sport, you get those um, life lessons that can um, whether they ha they make the connection right then and there or later down in in life, I think there's a lot of um, life life learning about you know as you grow older about life in sports mm -hmm. that can happen. As you got older, and um, did you go to did you go to Madras High School? I did. Yeah, was there a transition? Uh, going from the school here to to Madras and experiencing you know a, tr a racial trouble or um, you know prejudice uh, how 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 did you d deal with that um, so at the time when I was in I went to Warm Springs um, until fourth grade 
And then I well actually I went to Simnasho. We had a community school out there until fourth grade, and then uh, Jefferson County Middle School opened up the year that we were going into fifth grade. And that's here in Warm Springs. Um, no, or, oh, in Madras. Okay. okay. And so they had JCMS. We were the first class to go into that new building as middle school, and so all middle schoolers went there. And now the way they have it set up, so you went fifth through eighth at JCMS, and then you transferred in. Um, uh, into high school at ninth here now they have the K-8 so you're not actually transitioning till your freshman year over there Um, and so I honestly in my own experience you know I was kind of glad that I was able to transition you know I didn't like the long bus ride it was a very long bus ride from out in Simnasho all the way to Madras at that age but I'm glad because you know at fifth grade, I think you're more, um, you're more open, you're younger, you, you know, I think there's less judgment, you know, you're, you're still kind of a kid. Because by the time, you know, especially when you're coming from Warm Springs, by the time you're an eighth grader, there's a lot of things that um, I think our, our children here in Warm Springs um, experience, see, and um, live within that, you know, there, some of them are taking on roles of parents, you know, as older siblings or so by the time they're, they're going in as freshmen at that Madras high school, you know, there's already the basic groups that are already established by then and everything that, that transition I think is way harder than it was for me at fifth grade going into fifth grade. Cause my, my group of friends that I had was very diverse. You know, mm. I had um, Latinx friends. I had um, white friends. So I, you know, a pretty diverse group of friends that I had. Um, and I don't know how that transition is going now for our ones that K through eight. And so that does worry me for my daughter because she's in sixth grade and she'll be transitioning in a couple of years. And so I'm, you know, I'm worried about that. Um, and I would say my experience, I, as an athlete, that was one of the privileges, you know, and I, um, especially in basketball, my freshman year, I made varsity. And so I was a pretty privileged athlete all the way through high school when it came to basketball. And basketball is really huge both in Warm Springs and in Madras. And so um, with that came a lot of privileges. And so I think um, there was a few incidences that happened that to me was um, outright um, experiencing racism from a teacher and but I think when I it wasn't until I went to Chemeketa and I was in a couple of classes where they're talking about some of these things that then I realized that I had experienced more than I understood and that I um, even really knew that that was what that was. Um, and it really opened up my eyes to what we are experiencing, um, which is to me, you know, I think that goes into, you know, the, the whole conversation of critical race theory and, mm-hmm. you know, the pushback of people not wanting that. But then when you get to college, you can't, you're not going to be able to force colleges to not teach those. So do you want your children to be, I felt like I was cultural shock when I started learning about terminology, history, things that they don't teach in high school or middle school. 
And so now I do, you know, if my school, if my classrooms for my children aren't teaching those, I teach those at home. You had mentioned um, when you when we were having the, discu- the discussion on the panel that you were in college before you realized the extent to which people living here in the reservation and and then the tribes across North America are experiencing. Yeah. And that must have been a shock. Yeah, and it was. And, you know, so being an 18, 19-year-old and experiencing that, I was like, whoa, well, what, what? Like, it, it was a culture shock. And then also just some of the things that, you know, hearing from other, like, Latinx or um, some of my um, black college peers, you know, or I, you know, one of my roommates was an Islander and, you know, he was sharing some of his experiences. And so hearing the different experiences and being able to relate to, um, but some, you know, I wasn't able to identify those until I started learning, you know, the history. And I was in a, a U.S. history class when some of those were coming out. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. Um, so that's really kind of where I started questioning, you know, our systems and our institutions. And that's really where my interest started getting, um, I started getting interested in, at the time it was like cultural awareness. That's, you know, when all of this first start coming out. And so, um, and then, I, you know, just learning more and more. And a lot of that is um, self-awareness too, really learning about what, my people have gone through, mm-hmm. you know, because in the books you learn about the Midwest. And that was, you know, I got into an argument with a teacher in high school because I was like, no, it was middle school. And I was like, why are we learning about um, the Midwest tribes? Why aren't we learning about our tribes? Why aren't we learning about the, the nine tribes of Oregon? And he was like, oh, we don't, we don't need to learn about that. And I'm like, but that's more that seems more relevant than what you're, what's in this book. And he's like, well, we have to follow the book. Yeah, that's, that's been surprising to me because I've been doing a lot of reading recommended by uh, my friend Frank Smith. Mm-hmm. And it's so much of the literature, the written uh, literature available is from like tribes from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, I've, I've had that question where is the literature? Where do you go to connect with the history here? Um, um, what I started doing, I started asking my grandma a lot of mm. questions. You know, how was you raised? You know, um, she she went to the boarding school that was here. You know, the two buildings, the you have the education building and then you have our counseling center, which were both boarding school. They were the um, actual boarding schools where they housed the students. They were the girl and boys dorms. And so, you know, and I asked her because I, you know, I didn't know that the elementary that I was going to was a part of of that. And I didn't know that those buildings until I went away to college and then learned that. And I'm like, and I I was really angry, too, because I'm like, why did I not know this? Why was this not shared? And yeah, people can say, well, that should have been the responsibility of your grandma. But to me, I'm like, no, that's the responsibility of this education system to teach us whether we like it or not. That's our history. And it's not just 
Native people's history. It's the history of this, the foundation of this country. And so I was, I was really angry at the system of like, why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't you share this with me? Why am I learning this at 19 years old? I should have learned this when I was 12. Yeah, it's, I, I've, I've had the same experience as a white person because terms like manifest destiny and doctrine of discovery were like noble. They, they were presented as noble things mm-hmm. of, of our colonization, you know, like we were coming to, to be of benefit and to discover. So I've had the same kind of, um, I'll use a term from like desert storm, shock and awe that, that that's not what has occurred. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, so to, to, to come to terms with the truth of the history mm-hmm. um, is something that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk with you is, is to, like, begin to set the record straight for the, for the folks that will be listening, mm-hmm. that we can share uh, and communicate um, beyond what I was taught in school what even my children were taught in school, because when my kids went through school, they weren't. It was still, you know, the the uh, the manifest destiny and colonization was presented as a as a noble endeavor, mm-hmm. and that's not that has not even been remotely close to what the truth is. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a part of um, what we realized with Publix Misha. So within all of that and learning all of this, you know, I was going through this process of, you know, asking questions. And then I met, um, she's a relative of mine, but she came back to be a teacher. Um, Irvana Little Eagle and Gina Bluebird came back to teach at the K-8 when it opened. And, um, you know, one of the things they, they were talking about was historical trauma. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I heard that term. And I'm like, what is what is that? And so they started explaining, you know, what what that is and how trauma is passed down from generation to generation and how, you know, we can pinpoint some of those traumas from boarding school, from the boarding school era, you know, and colonization and the attempted um, genocide of our people. And it, you know, and it came at a really perfect time for me because I was still trying to get through the process of learning what I learned in school. And then, um, and so then that's where we started looking at, like, what is Publix Misha's intent? What is the purpose of it? And that's where we said, you know, we too have a responsibility, um, you know, because we, we were victims and we are victims. However, we have the opportunity and the ability to learn about our history and to heal from that history. And our belief is that if we can acknowledge that history for ourselves and what our families and our ancestors have gone through, that we might be able to better navigate the educational system. And so it's, you know, it's an acknowledgement and awareness of what happened, what happened to us, what happened to our families, what happened to our ancestors. And if we can understand that, we can better then understand the systems that are at play that sometimes still work against us, but at least we know for ourselves and we can start, you know, 
forgiving ourselves, giving grace to ourselves, understanding how the system is oppressing us, and be better equipped to navigate that system because we're still working within a system that wasn't built for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trusting um, no, I'll say this. I'm hoping that that there is the beginning of an awakening from um, from the white people as well. That there that there that there has to that we've got to come to terms with who we've been. You know, I I just shared this with someone this morning. Um, you know who you two is. And you uh, two, in one of their songs, uh, Bono wrote the lyrics that go, they say that what you mock will surely overtake you. And then you become the monster so the monster will not break you. And that's, you know, um, you know the original settlers that came from Europe came... Um, came with the psychology of having having tried to escape and then they became what they what they thought they were trying to escape mm-hmm. and so through the course of these centuries it's important that we have the opportunity to rewire our psychology mm-hmm. as well um, because of the harm mm-hmm. that's been done and that we've that we've perpetrated mm-hmm. um, you know, do you do you sense any cooperation from the government or the white community that there is the beginning of an understanding of what has occurred? I think in in um, in pockets there is, um, you know, and I think I think we whether it's good or bad for us. Um, I think there are some of us that still hold out hope that there can be, you know, a, a big shift and a change. Um, I see it happen in, in pockets, in small things. You know, um, sometimes it's as basic as, you know, the training I held, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and sometimes it's as big as uh, Deb Holland being named, you know, in the in, as the secretary. So... You know, those, those are small, I think, small but also big gestures of, you know, there is change happening and we know that change is, is hard and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, and so I think for me to continue to do this work, it's the small pockets and the, the, the um, I wouldn't call them small wins, but you know, in comparison to like an entire system, they're small wins. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I hold on to those and I, I appreciate those small wins that keep me in the work to keep doing this work. Because, you know, I think at Public Mission, just myself um, and the work that I do, uh, that is my belief that you don't know what you don't know. And so, but once you do know, there's an opportunity to do better and to, to help the people around you. And so I, 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 I think I feel it, but also um, it's hard because, you know, we've been, you know, it's like we'll take a step forward and then it's 
you know, five to 10 steps backwards. And so it's like, it's, it's inching and then you, something, there's a snag and then you have to go back a little bit. And that's hard because, you know, sometimes this work is, is heavy and it gets tiring. And I would think you would experience it in the political arena, the educational arena, and even the social mm -hmm. arena. Yeah. So it impacts every area that you would have the opportunity to make gains yep. in. Yeah. What I mean, just like, like my school board run, for example, you know, 55 votes. 55 votes. We were shy of being able to elect someone that reflected and understood the community of Warm Springs, you know, and lives in Warm Springs and is able to speak from those experiences and, you know, be in the trenches with the families, you know. And so it's, yeah, it does intersect in all areas and aspects of our lives. Yeah, that's... So there's no one from Warm Springs on the board. There's uh, one on the school board. Okay. There's one. Yeah, and the rest of them are are from Madras, and so you have one native, and then you have four uh, residents from Madras that are white. Hmm. Yeah, one of my one of my very very good friends served on the city council. In fact, I, I think you know her, Rita, mm -hmm. um, and. And she was the only person of color on the city council. And while it felt like there were some, a voice that began to emerge, it was very, very difficult to sustain any type of movement forward in any of the issues that meant something yep. to um, people of color, you mm -hmm. know, and to... Uh, to the people of Central Oregon, because if we don't find diversity, if we don't find um, a way toward equity, true true equity, not just the term of it, mm -hmm. but a, a true equity, um, then we're not going to be the the politics won't change, the education won't change, mm -hmm. the social structures won't change. Yeah. And I admire the work that you're doing and I'm I'm wondering if there are times where it just becomes seems overwhelming to you. Yeah, yeah, there is and there's been times where it's impacted my health. You know, um it's sometimes it can be uh it's almost like you're living in a constant state of stress, survival. And so um you know, trying to find a balance between making sure that I'm taking care of myself and my children and my family while also doing the work. Because the work, you know, um, you know, some can go to work and it's eight to five and they can leave it there and walk out and, you know, three day weekend or whatever. But for many of us, especially here in Warm Springs, you know, the work is 24 seven. You know, it's it's you go to the store and somebody stops you and shares a story with you about an incident that they heard. And when you become someone that people believe that they can relay their concerns with you so that you can then almost like add it to your your pocket to be like, OK, I'm fighting for another person. And I, now this is a story that I can that can help support my advocacy efforts because they now this is, you know, 
something else in it. And I don't use it as like a point system or anything, but, you know, when you get those stories and you don't ask for them, but when people believe that you have that voice to be able to help make change or help address the issue, um, it does get exhausting. I wouldn't change it. Um, I'm, I'm really, um, honored that people trust me and, you know, believe in the work that I'm doing, but it does, it does get tiring and it's, you know, it never ends. And, um, you know, and I'm having to teach my children that, you know, of it's not that this work isn't, it, it's, it is personal. It's personal work because it's, it's community work and it's, it's, it's for literal people's lives. And so it means so much more than just a job. Yeah. When you, when you live with purpose like that, you don't just leave it at the office. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you, where do you go to find the support or find, um, that sense of being able to take a breath and, and restore and rejuvenate and recover on free on your own behalf? How, how do you find that? Um, sometimes it's just, uh, saying no to things on the weekend and binge watching my favorite show. <laughs> <laughs> um, other times it's, you know, going out and, um, being able to just take a drive out in nature. Um, sometimes it's gathering our foods, you know, cause we do when we, um, or cooking, but cause we have a belief that when you are out gathering your foods, you have to be out there with a good mind, a good heart. And because you're gathering those foods, so if you have bad feelings or ill intentions that can go into the food and you can make people sick. And so when you go out, you have to be in a good mind. And, you know, so it's in, in most of the places we don't have cell phone service, so we can't be on our phones. Um, and so, you know, you're just out there, you know, in nature, taking in the sun and the wind and the quietness. Um, uh, other times it's just being able to be in a place where I can actually physically be taking my children to all their activities that they do and being able to be there and support them when their activities are happening. Because before that, a couple of years ago, you know, I wasn't able to you know, I, I still worked under a supervisor who was very like, yes, do take care. But it was it was an eight to five job. So sometimes, you know, my aunt would have to or my sister would have to take my kids to practice or to a game and to um, ballet. And now I'm in a position to where I'm like, I'm done at three because my daughter has piano. So we're going or my son has soccer. And so I'm, you know, and being able to be in a position to do that. And so I'm really grateful for that because, you know, that was one of my children's biggest complaints isn't necessarily the work that I do, but, you know, being there for them and being, you know, they want to see me in the stands. They want to see me. They want to want me to drive them to practice or to whatever they're doing. So that's a big part of it too, is just being able to spend that extra time of going to whatever they're doing or being there to cheer them on. And, and then travel. I love to travel. Hmm. And so I take, um, I've traveled more than I ever have probably in my life over the last two years. 
So you waited for COVID to get done, and then you were on a plane or a train, <laughs> a bus, or in a car going somewhere then. Yeah, yeah. And I worked through COVID, so I was pretty mm-hmm. tired by 2021 when it, you know, midway through 2021. And so, uh, yeah, as soon as it was open to be able to travel, I started traveling. And so now I, you know, that's kind of one of my non-negotiables is every year I try to take one big family trip that's no shy of two weeks and um, and then doing mini trips here and there. And so to be able to get away and some without the kids, but a majority of them with the kids. Yeah. One of the things we talked about um, at the screening you had you had talked about climate change impacting the food gathering here mm-hmm. and and how then getting back to what you just shared about having time with your family i mean climate change is is having is changing the way that you do the gathering and then it is going to affect other parts of your life can you share that with us? I was, I had not even considered that as an impact, but this is real life stuff occurring because of the the change of the seasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so for example, last year, uh, well, I guess maybe last year, this year, no, last year, we actually weren't able to gather any choke cherries, and. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't, choke cherries were kind of really hard to find. And, you know, without the, the, the proper uh, water intake, we didn't get any. So we had a dry, you know, a dry year. And that's, you know, if, if climate change is happening, you know, our water is going imp- to be impacted, you know. And so we, we didn't get to preserve choke cherries and so now hopefully we can sustain ourselves with the previous seasons to get us through one season and hopefully they come back this year um and so it does impact impact just not having that food but then once you know our feasts we have every single food there and if we don't have that food i don't know what that does i've never seen that before and so you know i don't and I don't even want to think about that, you know, like what that would what that would mean. Um, but it, you know, and then the change of the seasons, you know, right now we're getting snow into March, and you know, a few years ago we got snow into May, and we were out there digging roots, and it was snowing on us, and we're like, and that causes our roots to go under, which means our season is going to be way shorter, which means we don't get to gather as much as we need. And so, you know, and some of our seasons are, like most of our seasons are getting shorter for a lot of our foods, and then they're shifting. And so, like our, our wakamu, we, it, it, we have seen a change, and we have a shorter season for that one as well. And it's, it, it's getting, let's see, which way is it going? I feel like it's getting pushed back further back throughout the year. So like something that you would be, roots that you would be harvesting in April would be in May then, or is it going the other way? So our wakamu, we usually harvest like 
um, through June, mm-hmm. and then we bake them in July. But now, this last year, we actually didn't go out until I think it was like late June to start because um, there's a pond that goes over it, and when that pond, and it can it can be different every year based off of how much water and we were lucky enough that there was a lot of water this time but it extended our time to be able to go out and then one year we were out there early in early June because there wasn't enough water and it dried up and so that was a hard year which you know when that happens makes it hard for us to dig those roots Um, and so it's the weather you know it really does dictate when we go out how long we can go out and how much we're going to be able to gather. And so it's, you know, and, and I think I've, I've seen it coming up more in discussions and, and looking for ways to address it, but I don't know how you address that. And, you know, cause we don't control the weather. Yeah. We're, it seems as though we're impacting the weather. Mm-hmm. We're affecting the weather. Yeah, with, but we don't control it. The weather. Yeah, we don't control, but we do have the ability to do certain things and not do certain things. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, we don't seem to be learning that lesson. Uh, yeah, and we won't learn it probably until we lose things. Yeah, yeah. I I think you know Jennifer and I, my partner and I, started Shreeponia as a result of our own journey into recovery our own path into recovery. We're both recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction. And what we found, and the reason I'm really, uh, that I really appreciate having this conversation is that we're, as a species, so to speak, uh, human beings, we're recovering from, uh, we're recovering from a lot more than just the substances we put in our bodies that have affected us. Mm-hmm. Or we, we, if we choose to, we we can recover from colonialism. We can recover from capitalism. We can recover from the climate change, but it's going to require uh, a, a complete psychic change. And I, there are times that I'm wondering whether or not, collectively, if we're up for it, or like you said, Jaylen, or are we? Is it is it just going to take? beginning to lose things that we respond to the suffering and the pain that's caused by that to change our behaviors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it seems like we live in such a reactionary yeah. world. Or I shouldn't say world, I should say country. <laughs> we live in a reactionary country where I would love to live in a proactive country where we're not having to be ready for something but we're thinking beforehand and and that really kind of goes in line with um us as indigenous people that's always been the way that we thought you know we're always looking at the next generation and how do we make sure that what we're doing today doesn't harmfully impact our future generations how do we set them up you know and we're thinking of of children and people that aren't even here yet, you know, and that's, you know, but the country that we, the, the structures and the country that we're within, it's a very reactionary, we're reacting to a lot of things. 
And so it makes it hard. So it kind of keeps us in that survival state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And our reactions are not reactions that seem to be solving the problems that, that we've created. Yeah. And I, and I say we primarily the, the white people that have come here and colonized this country, you know, or this land. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the, the problems that have been created, we seem resistant to really stopping, like stopping the damage, pausing, and then asking creator and asking, um, you know, the, the, the people who have lived here on this land for, for gener- you know, for thousands of years, how can we begin to restore the damage that we've done? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, that, that's something that I, I'm hoping we don't have to lose everything. Um, because that, and, and, the, and I make the correlation to having been in active addiction and alcoholism and, and, and needing to come to a great deal of suffering and pain before I was willing to change my behavior and look for help. And I'm hoping that, that, that um, you know, as a culture, as a country, we don't have to go quite that far, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure. From, from the perspective of, you know, of the native people, are we going to, you know, what, what are the teachings that you receive regarding turning this situation around and healing our land? Um, I don't know, because, I mean, the teachings that I was taught wasn't really in response to what's happening. Mm. It was, you know, this is the way that we live. This is, you know, you, this is how you take care of the earth. This is how you give back to the earth. This is how you give thanks to the earth. And so it was just like already embedded that that's just what you do. So it was not necessarily um, in response to what's happening. That's just the way that we, or at least I was raised and taught, you know, is we're supposed to take care of the land. We're supposed to take care of our water. We're supposed to take care, you know, we we give thanks to the animals that give us um, nutrients and to the plants and the berries and all the things that, you know, the substances that we get to to use off the land. And we, you know, in return, we take care of it. We don't damage it and we do the least amount of damage we can to it. And so, you know, I think for me, it's, you know, those teachings are already there and, and they're not in response to climate change. They're not into response to... Um, building more cities, you know, they're not in response to any of those. That's just the foundation of our beliefs and values. That's really interesting because I'm realizing the psychology I, I that I'm in, and that's trying to solve all these massive problems. When you walk in the world, having been taught a way that's that has thrived been a beautiful way for thousands of years (laughs) that that's a (laughs) man 
I just learned a huge lesson. I, you know, that's, that's amazing to have that. In fact, when I came into the studio here, um, there was, I, I read something that it's seven generations that what, what, what you're doing today, you're doing with seven generations in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we don't, I, I, I was never taught to think in those terms ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's it's my lifetime, and then it's my children. Mm-hmm. That's about it. So, yeah, yeah. So the the path is has is here, and it's not in response to these emergencies. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and that's what I meant by reactionary versus exactly. proactive. Yeah. Like our, yeah. you know, if we were able to live the way that we wanted to live you know, our lives would be proactive. We, you know, we would, we wouldn't be reacting to an oil spill or any of those. Like we would, you know, be trying to be proactive in how do we make sure that um, our fish aren't, aren't harmed? How do we take care of the water so that it's clean? You know, and that's just built in already in the way that we live our lives and, and through our teachings. And so it's, it's, it's more proactive than reactive. And we live a, you know, we we're always reacting to something, you know, we were just reacting to a large, whatever that spill was, you know, and now we have to, you know, that's going to be handed down to generations mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm feeling like it, it might be a good, good time to begin to bring the conversation to a close but I'm wondering if we could I would love to do this again because I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit and it, and it may be um, yeah I think I would love to have further this conversation if you'd be willing to do that down, yeah. the, down the road that'd be great yeah like Sue said I'm a talker so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so great. I mean, I do want to share this because, you know, we, we had talked about finding a time to get together and then where in Warm Springs could we meet? And you happen to mention, well, maybe there's a quiet room up at the radio station. So I called Sue and Sue said, Greg, just come in and use one of our studios. <laughs> I, and it was, that was such a gift. So here we are sitting in front of, you know, a beautiful soundboard and microphones and, uh, what a gift it is to be able to sit here and have this conversation. Yeah, thank and, you for inviting me and yeah. and reaching out. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping we can do more. Yeah, I'm I'm open to it. So as we wrap it up, um, is there anything that you would like to offer uh, in closing? Um, I think you know what's on my mind right now is just um, thinking of the ways that folks can support. You know, there's there's many, many different ways. Of course, you know, financially, if you can support to different um, things that are happening. Um, and then I think, you know, as people are in their journey, you know, I'm hoping that there's more support around hearing the voices and supporting the voices of um, not only people of color, but uh, women of color in this country. You know, as a woman of color and, you know, being 
in leadership roles and in political realms, it's really hard as a woman of color um, in this country. And so, you know, um, I just encourage people to learn as much as they can, ask questions. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's definitely ways to get to, um, you know, people living with living equitable lives, you know, and I think I'll, I'll leave with, cause I know that this is probably going to be more Deschutes County. So I'm going to make a plug, um, <laughs> for Kina, who's running for school board, you know, as a former person that ran for school board and lost by 55 votes, every single vote counts. And if we can have more leaders of color, that would, you know, that's a start. That's a start. And so if you are in her, if you are voting for, you know, the school board in Deschutes County, I would ask, you know, that's, I'm going to leave that with here. You know, that's not even my county and that's not even my community. But, you know, I do believe in equitable representation and leadership. And if, you know, if we can um, support in that way, you know, that would be helpful. And then just educating yourselves mm -hmm. and asking questions and be willing to um, learn and, and know that it goes both ways. You know, we're doing the same thing. We're, we're trying to learn and, and navigate, um, you know, uh, this country and the landscape. Yeah, thank you so much, Jaylen. And yeah, the next time we get together, uh, we'll just do a deeper dive yeah, I look forward to it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you.